How's your humility this morning? To the extent that you are humble before a holy God, recognizing what he has done for you and that you have absolutely no sufficiency in yourself, that he had to pour out mercy upon you because you deserve nothing, you a sinner headed for hell under God's wrath, he saved you, he poured out mercy on you. Why are we so slow to pour it out upon us? We shouldn't be. And as we increase in our love and humility, we increasingly grow in our expressions of mercy. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. And so because of the mercy we have been granted to enter into the kingdom, we long to and are empowered to live out that mercy within the kingdom. So now let's look at the the heart of mercy. What does a heart look like that has been transformed by Christ, that has been given this mercy that they did not deserve, that has been granted entrance into the kingdom? What does this heart look like? Because if you don't cultivate these attitudes of the heart, you will never live out this mercy that you are commanded to live in the kingdom. So the heart of mercy is first love, first love. Mercy flows from love. And so unless we have and cultivate a heart of love, we will never consistently extend true mercy to one another. Again, consider Ephesians 2. I I already, I already read these verses, but I'll read them again. Ephesians 2, 4, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. You see, God extends mercy because he is a God of love. And because he delights to see others in right relationship with him, because he delights to bring his creatures into right relationship with himself, which brings greatest glory to Christ and greatest glory to God when others are in right relationship, because he loves to do this, he therefore extends mercy. His love drives his delight in delivering others from the consequences of sin. And so love really is first, as it were, the characteristic from which mercy flows. John MacArthur says this, mercy is the physician, love is the friend. Mercy acts because of need, love acts because of affection, where there is no need. Mercy is reserved for times of trouble, love is constant. There can be no true mercy apart from love, but there can be true love apart from mercy. There will be no need of mercy in heaven because there is no sin, there is no suffering, there's no misery, but love remains. And yet while we remain in this world, our love will drive our mercy. So as you consider whether or not you truly love others, you need to consider what is your heart of mercy towards them? Do you love as it were? Does your love drive you to love seeing others delivered from pain and difficulty? And again, not just others whom you like in a temporal way or love in a relational way for what they can give to you, but those that you truly love, that is, all others whom you desire to see in right relationship with God, and that is everyone. So love should drive our mercy and should drive our mercy towards 
everyone. So a heart of love must be cultivated. Do you delight to see others in right relationship with God? Is it your greatest delight to see people conform to the image of Christ? Then you will show mercy upon them for that is what they need in order to enter into that right relationship, in order to live with God and then for God, they are in desperate need of vast doses of mercy. Love drives it. You can, you can gauge the, the growth of your love by the growth of your mercy. Well, a second heart attitude that is essential if we are to live out mercy towards others is humility. That is a willingness to understand and live according to the true lowliness of our state in comparison to a perfect and holy God. You see, humility is the opposite of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And that's what we've seen in the Beatitudes so far. Poor in spirit, mourning over sin, gentle, hungering and thirsting for righteousness because we recognize our own sinfulness. And so as this humility of heart is cultivated, then we are able to be merciful. Probably the best illustration of those whose self-righteousness or lack of humility really and it kept them from being merciful, the best illustration in the New Testament would be whom? The Pharisees. The Pharisees absolutely failed to demonstrate a desire to show mercy to sinners. You see, they made their own sacrifices, but they certainly didn't extend mercy to others who were in need of, who needed to benefit from the salvation that the Pharisees were so sure that they had received because they were living according to the law. Now, probably in the bigger picture, the Pharisees didn't even think they were in need of mercy. That seems to be the problem. It wasn't as though they were rejoicing in the mercy of God because they were presenting themselves to God as, we've already taken care of it. Thank you for your law. Thank you for the sacrifices. We appreciate that. We're living all of that out. And so we deserve the salvation that you have provided. Never are we in a position to demand from God his salvation even though it is on the basis of, again, his own justice, and it is right and just for him to forgive sins in Christ, it is never our place to demand or somehow think that we attain. But when we begin to lack mercy, that, that is a reflection of our heart beginning to grasp our own self-righteousness and arrogance. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees in Matthew nine thirteen, when he is spending time with tax collectors and sinners, when he's pouring out mercy upon those whom the Pharisees were sure didn't deserve it, what did he say? He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion, the base word there, mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I could care less about your sacrifices before the altar because you have no mercy. And you are not extending that salvation as it were to anyone else because you're sure you've earned it and they're going to have to rise up to your standard to get it. Someone says, stop sacrificing. You need to show some mercy. I desire compassion or mercy and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. What is he saying? They weren't righteous. He's saying, I'm, I'm calling, I can shed my mercy. Mercy will have benefit upon those who recognize they need it and you don't. Step away from the altar as it were with your worthless sacrifices, your arrogant self-righteousness with which you are attempting to buy your way into heaven. Instead, pour out your mercy upon those who are in desperate need and recognize that God that you must have the mercy of God poured out on you. How's your humility this morning? To the extent that you are humble before a holy God, recognizing what he has done for you and that you have absolutely no sufficiency in yourself, that he had to pour out mercy upon you because you deserve nothing. You a sinner headed for hell under God's wrath. He saved you. He poured out mercy on you. Why are we so slow to pour it out upon others? We shouldn't be. And as we increase in our love and humility, we increasingly grow in our expressions of mercy. 
You can directly tie your growth and humility, your killing of your pride to the amount of mercy that you long to extend and do extend to others, particularly those who you're sure don't deserve it. Third is compassion. A heart that is easily moved, and compassion would be a heart that is easily moved with tender concern towards those who are in distress because we do not want them to experience the pain and difficulty of that distress. I wrestle with this. I wrestle with all of these, love and and humility and compassion. My heart is not naturally moved when I see others wrestling. I tend to think one of two things. Well, you know, they deserve that, so, you know, they need to fix it. Or it's not that bad. They, they They just need to deal with that. What does that indicate? It indicates an arrogance of heart, a lack of love for them, and a lack of compassion. And the more I grow in Christ by his grace, the more I am moved by the plight of others and desire to try to solve it however I may. And I'm thankful for that growth, but I need a lot more. And I would imagine for most of us, that is the case. We need greater compassion. Our heart needs to be more easily moved with tender concern towards those who are in distress. Not just those who are, who are you know, suffering in, in Africa and other places. We do need more compassion there. But those all around us who are suffering, not only the ravages of physical uh, difficulties and illnesses, but of their spiritual condition. Both of these need to move us to a far greater extent than they do. And in fact, I would have to say this, too often I'm probably moved by physical difficulty or physical distress than I am by spiritual distress. I do not carry enough weight. There's not enough compassion in my heart for those who are headed for eternal hell, whether they are doing well physically or not. I do not have a great enough compassion. But as the Lord builds that within me, then I am able and I do pour out more mercy upon others. You see, the Lord is so much different than men. Even at our best, of course, we do not have mercy. We do not have compassion like our Lord does. Do you remember what David said to the prophet Gad? Probably not. Probably don't remember there was a prophet Gad. But in 2 Samuel 24, 14, David has numbered the people in opposition to the will of God. And God is going to bring a punishment upon him. And Gad comes and says, look, you got three options. One option has to do with, with your running from your enemies. The other has to do with falling directly into the hands of God. And I don't, at this point, remember the third option, but there were three. (laughs) The first two are the most important ones because what David says to Gad is, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. That is this option that I get to run from my enemies. I don't want that one because if they get me, they're going to show no mercy. I want to throw myself into the hands of God, even though I've sinned in his sight because I know he's merciful. And did David make a good choice? He certainly did. Because as we find in that very punishment, God begins to begins the plague of, of, of the city of Jerusalem and, and the death angel is standing over it to, to wipe the city out. And God says, no, I will have mercy on these people. And he stays his hand. David made a good choice because God is not like men. And even though Jerusalem didn't deserve any salvation, it was David's sin, but they were sinful too. David didn't deserve the staying of God's hand. And yet God granted it to him anyway. He is merciful. And a heart of compassion is necessary if we are to pour out mercy. But there's one more. And this might surprise you a bit, but it is very important. We must cultivate a heart of justice in order to actually show mercy. And really, this is what defines Christian mercy. Because so often the world has a weak, cheap form of mercy, which is, it doesn't matter what anybody does, you just sit, let them go. 
If they accomplish this or do that, you know, you need to, you need to feel sorry for them. And you're too harsh if you hold them to the penalty. Now, very interestingly, the world rarely feels that way if the sin is directly against them. And even when the sin is directly against them, for example, a murderer kills someone's child and you see someone say, I, I, I want to grant them forgiveness. I want to show them mercy. Where is that murderer usually when that's being granted? That murderer is in prison. That murderer is not being set free to come back into that home and continually kill more children from that family. I guarantee you that father would not feel the same way. And so even there, justice has a large part to play with true mercy. And we have to remember that. A very fascinating verse in Romans eleven thirty two. 32. It says, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. You see, there is no true mercy if there is not actually justice. If things aren't actually wrong, then to deliver people from the consequences of it is not mercy. It's just what, what's to be expected. It's just a, a random whim of our desire. But no, there are true things that are truly wrong. There's true punishment that actually happens. Sin is actually having its consequences. And that is why mercy can actually be shown. The deliverance from the rightful consequences of our sin on the basis of justice being paid in Christ. And that's what makes mercy valuable because it is based upon the death of the son of God. God's mercy always costs him and true mercy is always costly. John MacArthur says the truth is that God does not show mercy without punishing sin And for him to offer mercy without punishment would negate his justice and would in fact negate the reality of true mercy. Mercy that ignores sin is a false mercy and it's no more merciful than it is just. You see, this sort of mercy, false mercy, is common in our day. It is thought to be unloving and unkind to hold people responsible for their sins, but this is a cheap grace and it is not just and it is not merciful in that it offers neither It offers neither punishment nor pardon for sin. And because it merely overlooks sin, it leaves sin. The one who relies on that sort of mercy is left to his sin. To cancel justice is to cancel mercy. Psalm 85.10, loving kindness. It's really the word hesed, which often in the Old Testament is translated with the word mercy. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. True mercy is grounded in true culpability for sin. And God's love of bestowing his mercy upon the sinner came at the price of his own son. In every true act of mercy, someone pays the price. God did. Remember the good Samaritan? God uses, Jesus uses that as an example of mercy. He paid the price, as it were. So his mercy cost him something. To be merciful is to bear the load for someone else. Well, now let's look at how we would exercise this heart. If you are cultivating this heart of love and humility and compassion and justice, then how will you live out the true mercy that God would empower you to live in the kingdom? How will you continually be merciful? What will this look like? And by the way, the only time mercy is easy is when it's free. That is, there's nothing bound to it. So therefore, true mercy is never easy. Well, it's easy to dispense mercy on someone else. You you be nice. Oh, I I feel towards you and someone else go be nice to or deliver someone else from misery, but not me. It's only true mercy when I'm willing to give, when I'm willing to expend my resources in order for someone to be delivered from misery. Micah 6.8, kind of grounding all of this, he has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly 
with your God. This is how we're supposed to live. It just reflects, it's, it's the New Testament version of that is Matthew 5, 7. So how will we live this out? First and perhaps foremost, these don't necessarily come in order. But if we are to live out the mercy of God that he has given to us, we will forgive. This flows out in forgiveness. The very essence of mercy is to offer forgiveness, for this is the only way that men can be rescued from the penalty of their sin, from the misery and distress that sin brings. It is our cold, harsh hearts that secretly delight in seeing others suffer for their sin that keeps us from forgiveness. This is true in marriages. This is true between estranged parents and children, between, between estranged families, where somehow be, they refuse to forgive because somehow they want that person to suffer in one way or another. They haven't suffered enough. When they suffer enough, then I'll forgive them. When they suffer enough, then we can come into right relationship. Look what they've done to me. They haven't suffered. So I will not forgive. It's the opposite of mercy. Mercy says, I can't wait. What can I do? How can I help relieve them of that suffering? Yes, it's based in justice and truth. We understand that. It's not cheap or easy, but it is essential. If we have a heart of mercy towards others, we are quick to forgive and we look for any possible way that we can work. First, we do it in our own hearts on the basis of what Christ has done for us. That is, we forgive them instantly. Because for us to hold bitterness against them, although we think somehow it's harming them, it's really only harming us. And yet we, we give them a thousand deaths in our own mind because of the sin that they've committed against us. Instead, we are to forgive because we long to see them relieved from the consequences of their own sin. We extend forgiveness. Matthew 18, 23, turn there. Matthew 18. We'll discuss this in detail in some weeks hence as we move in that direction. But Matthew chapter 18, you're familiar with this story that is given when Peter asks, how many times should I forgive? Up to seven times. And Jesus said, 70 times seven. And then he gives him a, he, he relates to him a parable, essentially. For this reason, the kingdom of God may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Verse 23. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. The point here is not who paid and how is it paid. That's not the point. The point is the compassion of the mercy of the master. And as the slave cravenly begs for forgiveness, saying that he can pay when he clearly can't, the master, not on the basis of what the slave can do, but on his own nature, grants forgiveness. Because he is merciful. Verse 28, but the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. Or have we heard this before? He just heard it. He just said it in our story. Verse 30, but he was unwilling. And he went and threw him into prison until he should pay back all that was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Stay with me here. Verse 32, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Notice the, the emphasis. You pleaded with me. I had mercy on you. Verse 33, should you not also have had 
mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. I longed to relieve you from your debt and the suffering that would have brought, that would have brought for me to sell you and your family and for you to be put in prison. And I relieved you of it because I have a heart of mercy. And yet you would not do this for the one that owed you little, even though you owed me much. Because that's what it means when we don't forgive. You cannot excuse a lack of forgiveness for anything. There is nothing that you cannot forgive because you have been forgiven far infinitely greater than any, than any sin against you would ever be, ever. We forgive because we long to show mercy. We will not get our pound of flesh. We will not harbor a bitterness in our heart, which continues, we think, to, to bring the punishment on that other person that they so richly deserve. Well, it's a good thing that God did not do that for us. And so forgiveness will be a primary, if not the primary expression of mercy. Again, that's why it's called the mercy seat. On the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, we forgive. You have just reason to forgive because Christ deals with sin. That person who has sinned against you will either face the consequences on his own if he does not seek forgiveness in Christ, and he will pay. Or he will find forgiveness in Christ and Christ will have paid. So you forgive and you let Christ, you let God deal with the issues related to how he extends that mercy and in which way he does it. You give it and you allow God then to do what he would have. Secondly, true mercy will always extend out in selfless generosity. Selfless generosity in particular in relationship to meeting others' needs, physical and spiritual. The Bible gives multiple Examples of both. Because mercy longs to see people set free from pain and difficulty, it is characterized by a joyful, gracious giving of spiritual, physical, and material resources, including your time. Because really our, our, what becomes a greater problem for us when we are exhibiting true mercy is not, not giving inappropriately. There are boundaries to how we give and scriptural principles to how we do these things. But really our heart ought to be, if I could just give you everything, I would. If I could just provide you with everything you needed, I would do that in a second. Uh, the only thing I, I, I'm, I don't like is that I can't do that. The only thing that grieves me is I can't give you everything that you might need. How often is that our heart? Well, towards the people we like, towards our family members maybe, but not towards unbelievers, not towards the people in prison that we're sure deserve everything that they're getting. When we just long, when will our hearts just long to give everything? I wish I could give you more. The only reason I can't is because it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be truly according to biblical principles for me to give you more. That should be our heart, a selfless generosity in meeting needs. Now, this, this, is, spirit, this is spiritual needs. Psalm 119, 156, great verse. says, great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. We give people God's word. God has given us the full riches of Christ. Psalm 119, 156. And he's given us those riches applied to us in salvation and then given to us in his word. And we provide that to others. We're to bring the word of God to bear. Mark 6, 34, when Jesus went ashore, he, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them. As we give our time and our effort and our energy to bring the, the teaching of the word of God and we take that to the people that are in desperate need and we take it into the prisons and we take it to the poor and, and the struggling and the afflicted and the needy and we take it to the rich and the self-sufficient and self-righteous. We take it everywhere because we have a heart of mercy. But also it's just meeting pure physical needs. Matthew 14, 14, when Jesus went ashore, he saw the crowd, he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. He didn't just teach them, he healed them. He provided them deliverance from their physical agony and we long to do that as well. These go together for us as they went together for Jesus. 
as we seek to provide for physical needs, we also bring spiritual resources to bear so they will not suffer the greater need ultimately, which is or the greater sickness, the greater agony of eternal hell. But we do both. Matthew 15, 32, Jesus called to his, his disciples to him and he said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry that they might faint on the way. He's looking at the people. Going, they, they, need hung, they need food. They're hungry. He's driven by a heart of compassion in everything that he did and spiritual resources and in physical as well. And we need to do the same. A lack of judgment, or I might say a merciful judgment will be part of our lives if we are truly merciful. James 2.13 says, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Proverbs 11.17. The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. You see, if we refuse to show mercy to others who deserve judgment, then God will not show mercy to us who deserve just as much judgment. You see, this does not mean that we do not judge things properly according to the truth of God's word. It doesn't mean that we never bring a penalty to bear for the violation of God's principle. This characteristic means that we seek to do everything possible to relieve others from the harmful consequences of their actions, and that is particularly to call them to repentance and faith. It is to remember that God has continually demonstrated mercy to us on every level, and we are not to become more demanding than he. And so often this is our heart. The Bible commends righteous judgment. It condemns unmerciful judgment. And sometimes we confuse the two. In fact, often we confuse them. We need to be more careful. So a merciful judgment will be part of who we are if we are living out mercy. Evangelism, of course, this. Maybe I should have put it first. Maybe, maybe second, after, right after forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 4.1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. The ministry of presenting the truth of the gospel to those who are dying, to those who are suffering the sickness and affliction of sin. 1 Timothy 1.16, For this reason also I found mercy. This is Paul speaking of Christ saving him. He says, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Because we long to be merciful to others, we proclaim to them the gospel just as God has done it for us. Now again, remember, God does not overlook sin in bringing mercy, but that is why he provided Christ. The good news is that in the shedding of Christ's blood, justice was satisfied, sin was forgiven, righteousness was fulfilled, and mercy was made available. There is never an excuse for sin, but always a remedy. And our mercy drives us to be quick to present the remedy. If we long to do this, and we do it with, with, with the last, our last breath before Christ comes again. Bringing comfort to others will be an extension of true mercy to them. The merciful heart loves to bring comfort to those who are struggling through affliction and distress. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction and enables us then to comfort others with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. How good are you at comfort? Girls do comfort. Moms do comfort. I don't do comfort. Well, some moms don't do comfort, by the way. This is not done naturally. 
This is a spiritual desire to see someone in pain and to warm them as it were, warm them spiritually, warm them emotionally, warm them physically, whatever it might be, to try to bring them a measure of comfort in their distress, wherever they might be, sick in a hospital, wrestling with depression at home. So easy for us to either overlook those things or be too busy or or judge them for inappropriately for what they're going through. That was your fault. You don't deserve any comfort. Really? I'm glad God doesn't say that to you. Sorry, you're a sinner. You get no comfort today, no comfort for you, only suffering. No, I don't think so. That's not how God treats us. That's not our heart towards others, but too often it is. Parents, how about towards your children? Okay, when, when they're nice and you're feeling good, they can be pretty easy to give comfort. It can be pretty easy to be merciful. But when you're sure they've deserved this, the, the, you know, the judgment that you bring down from on high, it's hard to be merciful and it's hard to bring comfort. I wrestle oftentimes with bringing comfort after discipline because I haven't properly dealt with my own heart. And so I bring the discipline to bear and I'm all riled up and I'm like, yeah, comfort, you know, we're supposed to hug and you're supposed to hug me and, you know, I do like they do. And go hug your, hug your brother or sister after you say, you know, like this. That's not a heart of comfort that longs to help them through this sin because I'm mad that they wrecked my day and I had to go do this discipline. It's ruining my time. It's not the way God is for us. Even when he disciplines us, he brings us comfort. And he grants us grace. How about patience? The heart of mercy is slow to anger because of its strong desire to do everything possible to deliver from the consequences of sin. You see, this is, this is who God is. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, oh, you are a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. What kind of anger is that? That's righteous anger. God never gets sinfully angry. Certainly you ought to be slow to sinful anger because you're merciful. But even the anger that dispenses the punishment towards sin, a righteous anger, is slow to move if we can give mercy first, if we can grant that first to bring them to that recognition. How slow are you to anger of any kind? That is how you will, you will understand the nature of your growing in mercy. And then a final one here, prayer. If we are truly merciful, then we will continually go to God in prayer for others so that they can drink from the well of mercy that God provides on their behalf. Hebrews 4.16, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would you bring others before the throne? Would you pray for them that they might receive the mercy that truly only God can dispense? He dispenses it through you and through others, but it is God's mercy. And would you pray for them? It is merciful to do so. Well, lastly here, what's the reward? As with each beatitude, there's always a reward. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And we're about to celebrate that. It's not mercy from men. Don't somehow think that if you are merciful to everyone else, that they'll be so nice to you and give you mercy back. There's no guarantee of that whatsoever. In fact, the more merciful you are, oftentimes the weaker the world thinks you are, and they bring you under the thumb. But not Christ, not God. Really, our giving of mercy is a reflection of the fact that we have entered into the kingdom. It is not that which forces God's mercy. Really, when we are merciful, it is an expression of the fact that we recognize and have responded to the mercy he's given to us. And it is a guarantee, as it were, as our lives show and pour forth that mercy, that we're actually in the kingdom and will one day receive the full benefit of that mercy, which is eternity in heaven with God. And that's what we, are, what we come to celebrate this morning, his mercy. And your response to it will largely determine whether you're in the kingdom, will determine whether you're in the kingdom or out. So Paul, come and share with us as we begin communion.
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.